Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. So, have you ever had an experience in life where one moment sort of changed everything? I uh, read about, it was about 1990, I read um, Stephen Covey's book, Five, uh, Seven Habits of, of Heaven. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Thank you, I'll get it out yet. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was really quite a great book. And he tells a story of being on a subway in New York City. And they pulled into a stop and the car that he was in wasn't really full and was, was fairly quiet. And this gentleman got on and two kids and the kids just ran like terrors throughout the subway car, banging people's papers and just, just, just really messing up. And so at some point as the passengers in that car were starting to get a little bit more tense, Stephen Covey spoke to this fellow and he said, sir, um, perhaps you haven't noticed, but your, your children are kind of wrecking havoc in the car here. And the man responded like he came out of a daze and he said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. He said, we just came from the hospital and, and their mother just died and, and, and they don't know how to act. And quite honestly, I don't know how to do so either. And Stephen talked about the change that took place in that subway car. In that moment when they understood the dynamics of what was taking place, everything changed in a moment. And the past few weeks, we've been discovering an insight about the truth of heaven that should really change everything about our lives. And I encourage you, if you have not been a a part of the series, to take a moment and perhaps to go back and to catch up with what we have been doing in the series in talking about heaven. We've been talking about the fact that heaven should really change the way that we live. And indeed, this morning we're going to talk about living for heaven's sake. Rick Warren reminds us of this insight in his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. When he says these words, he says, life is just a preparation for eternity. Life is just a preparation for eternity. And I think that Rick has good theology in suggesting that that is the case. So this morning, we're going to talk about three perspectives on life being a preparation for eternity. And we're going to talk about living for heaven's sake and how it affects our attitude, how it affects our actions, and how it affects our associations. First of all, let's talk about how living for heaven's sake affects our attitude. You know, God has given us the ability to choose how we think. And I have to be reminded of that myself because the way that I'm wired, it's easy for me to ruminate on things, especially if there are problems that need to be solved. About 3 a.m., I'll wake up, And hope to goodness my mind won't start, but all too often it starts, and then I go into the problem-solving mode that's sometimes called ruminating, where I go over and over and over again trying to think of solutions to the problem that may be in front of me. But I have to remind myself that, in fact, God has given us a choice about how we think and where our thoughts go, and we have the ability to control that and not let them go in that direction. 
It's important for us to understand this, that in fact we can control our thoughts because this life is not all there is. And Paul writes in the message version or the message version of Paul's writing, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, so we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. For instance, he says, we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they'll be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven. God made, not handmade, and we'll never have to relocate our tents, that is our bodies, again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move, and so we cry out in frustration. Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfinished shack, and we're tired of it. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrected bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never have to settle for less. That's why we live with such good cheer. You won't see us drooping our heads or dragging our feet. Cramped conditions here don't get us down. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions ahead. It's what we trust in, but don't yet see that keeps us going. It's what we trust in, but don't yet see that keeps us going. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road or rocks in the path are going to stop us? When the time comes, we'll be plenty ready to exchange exile for homecoming. So, friends, when we take an eternal view of life, which is what we're talking about this morning, it doesn't mean we don't have troubles along the way. But it means that we can see God's purposes at work in our lives, preparing us to be the people that he wants us to be. And strangely enough, we can even find some joy in the journey and even in the challenges, even in the suffering, because we know that God is doing a work in our lives Sometimes when we are at our worst, we see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God breaking in and our attitude is changed. Mark Buchanan was a pastor on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. He tells about meeting a couple of congregants of his, Gary and Elaine, for lunch. And Gary and Elaine had been in his church longer than he had. And uh, they were well-respected in the community. They had a counseling practice, and they had helped so many people in that area because the next counseling practice was over an hour away. And so they helped folks with, with personal issues, with, with marriage kinds of problems and issues, and with parents whose children had gone in a different direction and the family was trying to cope and wrestle with those things. And they had this this challenge now in their own lives. It was Gary and Elaine that needed help. 
At times, the burden of helping other people weighed heavy upon them, and it was a challenge for them themselves sometimes to keep going as they bore the pain of others. But in this particular instance, the government of British Columbia had changed the reimbursement structure, and they were not going to continue to be able to see, receive government funding for the counseling they did. And they began to look at the personal cost, and the personal cost was that they could very well have to close their practice, and they also may have to sell their home because of the economic urgency that was going to face them. Mark says, their pastor Mark said, he really didn't know what to say to them to comfort them. When Mark felt like he had nothing to give and the time of their luncheon was running out, he asked a question. He said, Gary, you have done a lot of things. Uh, it's not like counseling is the only thing you need to do. And Gary responded by saying, I've got a commercial pilot's license. Um, I'm also a licensed aircraft mechanic. He said that I also uh, ran a design and construction firm. So he did, in fact, have some other things. And uh, But the, the challenge... Um, was, was still real in their lives. But he mentioned one other thing, and he said, many years ago, Elaine and I were actually church planters. He said, in fact, Elaine and I started the very first church in Whistler, British Columbia. And Mark asked when it happened, and he said, well, it, it happened in the late 1970s, and Mark asked then if it was a little A-frame church that was under the gondola, and Gary told him it was, and Mark mentioned that in his pre-Christian days, he had gone to Whistler with a couple of friends, and there was an acquaintance that connected them with these people that had this cabin, and uh, so he went there, and he... he uh, he recognized at a moment and he described the cabin and Gary and Elaine said, that was our place. And then it all came back to Mark. He remembered Elaine taking pizza out of the oven for he and his buddies and he, uh, he remembered that there was a Bible study that night. They were up for the weekend, but he remembered there was a Bible study, and he was invited to participate in the Bible study, but in his pre-Christian days, he said, you know, no thanks. Um, but he remembered the Bible study going on and walking past the door on the way to the restroom and on the way back, and on the way back, he stood outside the door of that meeting, and he, uh, he listened for a while to what was being said. And uh, as he listened, Mark tells us what he heard. He said, a man's voice, slow, soft, and measured. He was speaking encouragement to the group, telling of God's strange choreography, his hidden providence, the way he sculpted purpose out of everything and everything and nothing and failure and detour and disappointment and duty and waiting. He told them how God had done this with him recently. He believed God had called him to be a missionary pilot, but every door that he explored to engage in that had closed. Afterwards, he was led through a series of interconnected events to the work he did now. I believe, the man said, that Mark overheard in that Bible study that night, 
that I would never have ended up a pastor or a church planter if God hadn't first opened the door for me to be a pilot and then shut it hard. Gary, Mark said at the lunch, that was you, wasn't it? Gary's eyes were filled with tears as he said, yes. Gary, I have to tell you, Mark said, what I did next. He said, I went back to the room where my friend and brother were, and I told them what I heard. I told them Christians must be plumb crazy because they think God is personally involved in their lives. They think that God's hand is actually directing them, and we laughed at the absurdity of it. But Gary, Mark said, I couldn't let it go. I had never heard this before. I'd never even conceived of it. God cares about me. Five years after that, he said, I came to faith in Christ, and today I'm your pastor. Gary Lane, in part because of a conversation I overheard 25 years ago about a God who wastes nothing and who loves intimacy. So Gary and Elaine left the restaurant that day feeling different than they came in. And friends, when we live for heaven's sake, it affects our attitude. It affects that we approach the way that we approach our lives. We recognize that our lives have meaning and purpose. And the fact that our lives have meaning and purpose, it helps us to get through the rough times. Second thing I want to suggest this morning is that living for heaven's sake affects our actions. It affects our actions. So what we do and what we think are affected by what God has done for us and how we live our lives for heaven's sake. In Colossians 3 verses 1 to 17, Paul writes about this. And as I read this passage, I want you to Take note of the specific things that we are supposed to do. Colossians 3 is really an amazing passage. It contrasts lives that are not lived for heaven's sake and what they look like and lives that are lived for heaven's sake and what they look like. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds... Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here's the contrast. This is a life that is not lived for heaven's sake, but is lived for our own sake. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. The list continues, and perhaps for some of us, this is a little more telling. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, Slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self what is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, 
There's no Greek or Jew. There's, there's no racism in the family of God. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And, and now we have the contrast, and I want you to listen carefully to the characteristics of someone who is living their life for heaven's sake, who is preparing for eternity. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, we choose what we do. We've been given a free will. Living for heaven's sake means we make the choice to live our lives differently. We live for the long haul. We live in light of eternity. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Living for heaven's sake makes us much more effective people in the here and now. There used to be an expression that we would say that someone who um, thought so much of the other world of heaven would not be much worth here. But in fact, the truth revealed to us is that it's just the opposite. He who is heavenly minded, we would say, was no earthly good. And in fact, just the opposite is true. The third and final thing I want to leave with you this morning is that living for heaven's sake affects our associations. When we live for heaven's sake, we take care to notice those who are on the journey with us. God knows that good relationships build us up for kingdom living. They build us up for living for the sake of, of heaven, and it makes a tremendous difference in our lives. Bad relationships pull us down. Good relationships raise us up. Notice how Paul describes this in Philippians 3, and again, a reading from the contemporary message version. Stick with me, friends. Keep track of those you see running this same course, headed for the same goal. There are many out there taking other paths, choosing other goals, and trying to have you go with them. I've warned you about them many times. Sadly, I'm having to do it again. All they want is Easy Street. They hate Christ's cross. But Easy Street is a dead-end street. Those who live there make their bellies their gods. Belches are their praise. And all they can think of is their appetite. A rather straightforward description, is it not? 
But there's far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. Friends, we need fellowship. We need others who are making this journey of living life for heaven's sake. And we also need to make the journey with our Lord. In 1 John 1, we read, From the very first day we were there, taking it all in, we heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen, and now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, our motive for writing is simply this, we want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. Friends, we live and we are brought into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His love was extended to us, and we can live in that kind of a relationship. Uh, Pastor Robin has been telling us uh, in staff meetings off and on about how wonderful the television series The Chosen is. And, and I have to confess that my response has been sort of, well, that's nice, Robin. Thank you for sharing. Uh, but, but to be honest with you, Christian programming, in, this is my opinion, has been so bad, so schmaltzy, with such bad acting, that I'm like, I just, I just don't care for this stuff that much. The plot is predictable. It's just, you know... But the other day, we decided we would take Robin's word for it and begin to watch The Chosen. And I got to tell you, it is so powerful. The acting is incredible. You know, all of the, all of the technical stuff is on par with what you would get anywhere else in Hollywood. But it it's kind of follows, at least in the first series, kind of looks at Jesus kind of through the eyes of Nicodemus. And uh, we got to, I think it was the last video of the first series where we have that encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And it was just so incredibly powerful. And so as we talk about taking this journey with God, sometimes it's hard for us to relate to God the Father. You know, he kind of seems like the Old Testament God and it's a little hard for us to relate. But Jesus through the incarnation, becoming one of us, we see the heart of God in Jesus. And so I I want to encourage you as a homework assignment. I think it's available free um, if you just get the right app downloaded to your computer or your phone or um, your TV. You uh, You can see the character and the life of Jesus and our calling to be like him. So this morning we began by talking about how life is a preparation for eternity. And we talked about how God prepares us. And as we give our lives to him, he shapes our attitudes. He shapes our actions. And he shapes those that we associate with, that we spend time with. And he prepares us through the challenges of life for what he wants us to do for time and eternity. 
So are we learning and growing like we read about in Colossians chapter 3, where our character is becoming increasingly like Jesus Christ, which prepares us for living in heaven? Or are we going in a different direction with our lives and not, in fact, living for heaven's sake? Sometimes the preparation is not fun. Sometimes the preparation that God has for us is downright painful. Being apprentices to Jesus means he shapes us and he molds us as his apprentices and that shaping and molding is sometimes difficult and challenging in our lives and yet we're being prepared for effective service for the kingdom of God. Some of you may remember the movie The Karate Kid. It came to theaters in 1984 and it tells the story of Daniel who moved with his single mom from New York to California. And Daniel, for Daniel, the move was very difficult. He was bullied at school, and when he finally had enough of the bullying, he wanted to be able to defend himself. And so he thought karate would be the answer to simply being able to defend himself in this new environment. He heard that Mr. Miyagi, who was the caretaker for the complex in which he lived, um, was from Okinawa and that he was, in fact, a karate master. And so he went to see Mr. Miyagi and talked to him about what he wanted to do. And Mr. Miyagi agreed <clears throat> to take him on uh, as an apprentice to learn karate. And so it was so exciting for Daniel the first day he went over and he thought he was going to learn karate moves and be able to take on these guys that were so troublesome to him. But in fact... Mr. Miyagi had a bunch of cars, a bunch of classic cars in his yard, and he told him to wash the cars. And so Daniel didn't understand, but he really wanted to get the training, and so he washed the cars. And then some of you may remember, after washing the cars, he taught him how to wax the cars, and he showed him <clears throat> with the left hand, <clears throat> excuse me, with the left hand, to put wax on, and with the right hand, wax off, wax on wax off. So he did that until he got all the cars done and then he came expecting for more training and in fact there was this massive deck that seemed to go for miles and it needed to be sanded and there were the same kind of motions sanding the deck. He thought he got the deck done but the next morning at six when he came to Mr. Miyagi's house around the other side of the house was just as much a deck to be sanded again. And then there was a fence to be painted. And he got the paint out, Mr. Miyagi did, and he showed him the brush strokes to paint the fence, to paint the fence. And Daniel was beginning to get a little tired of this, thinking he was going to be trained. And the next day he goes and Mr. Miyagi shows him the house that needs to be painted and the instructions, because he's not there, of the strokes that he is supposed to use to paint the house. And at the end of that day, with Daniel painting the house, Mr. Miyagi comes home as twilight begins to settle with the fishing rod. He's been fishing all day, and 
Daniel's now been working for days, and so Daniel explodes at Mr. Miyagi. He is so angry. He came to learn karate, and he has done nothing but work for Mr. Miyagi. He's angry, and he's done. And Mr. Miyagi calls him over, and he utters these important words. Not everything is as seem. Not everything is as seem. And he proceeds to show him how wax on, wax off, paint the fence and paint the house, prepare him for crucial karate moves. The pain was producing progress. Friends, God uses the challenges of our lives to shape us into the kind of people that can live for heaven's sake. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of our faith, for the beauty of our understanding of your death and resurrection, what you mean to us, what you have provided for us, And, Lord, that you walk with us even through the challenges of this life. In fact, the challenges prepare us for the work that you have for us in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters, as no doubt in every life here there are challenges. Give us the strength and the courage to learn what we need to learn, that we would be living life for heaven's sake, that we would enjoy being effective for your service, not only here, but in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen.